Creative Babble. Jim Popkins is a longtime journalist and author of Codename Blue Wren, the story of Ana Montes, the Cuban spy. Ana, I believe, was one of the most dangerous American spies, period, and I would argue the most dangerous female spy. And the reason you've probably never heard the name Ana Montes is because she was arrested just 10 days after 9-11. The news of her arrest slipped completely under the radar. Ana Belen Montes spied on the U.S. on behalf of Cuba for 17 years. What made her especially dangerous was that she spied for the Cubans from inside the U.S. intelligence community. Before we get into the kind of intelligence that she leaked to the Cubans, it's important to get some historical context. Relations between Cuba and the U.S. were especially tense in the 1980s. Fidel Castro's grip on the island resulted in hundreds of thousands of Cubans fleeing Florida. During this time, the U.S. labeled Cuba a sponsor of terrorism due to Castro's support of guerrilla groups in Latin America. Maybe it's because I was born into a Cuban family living in Miami during the 80s. Every evening at around 6 o'clock, I watched the drama unfold on the Spanish news stations. My grandfather, who was a political prisoner in Cuba and eventually exiled, watched as the Castro and Reagan administration made their next move. Que con combatientes cubanos podrá contar el movimiento revolucionario en cualquier rincón de la tierra. It was a deadly game of chess. But how do you cheat at chess? The only way is for one of the players to receive information while the game is still in progress. That would be one hell of an advantage. Just a few whispers regarding your position can transform the game. And this is exactly where Ana Montes comes in. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Ana Montes is an American, but her parents are from Puerto Rico. She had a complicated relationship with her family, especially her sister Lucy. Here's my conversation with author Jim Popkins. But you know what I, I think is great about your book and what really resonated with me was the tale of two sisters. That thread that takes you from the beginning to the end. When they were young, they were really close. And Anna's, I think, 16 months older than Lucy, and she was very motherly with her. She would read to her and bathe her. She even took her to school for her first day when they were really little. And as they grew up, they grew a little bit apart. The two sisters went their own separate ways. Anna got recruited by the Cuban Intelligence Service. And in late 1985, decided to spy for them. Around the same time, Anna's sister Lucy worked in a department store in Baltimore, but she decided that she needed a change in her life. So 
Lucy started looking through the classified ads and applied to be a translator for the FBI in Miami. And within a week to two weeks of when Anna decided and agreed to spy for Cuba, her sister, who was working in a department store, tells her, great news, I got a job at the FBI. And the FBI, of course, is the main law enforcement agency that tracks and investigates spies in our country. So this was a very awkward conversation between these two sisters. And Anna was extremely upset and tried to talk Lucy out of it. But the parallels, you couldn't paint the more dramatic story of two siblings going the opposite direction, right? Exactly. And it came to a head years later when Anna just became more and more sullen and taciturn, wouldn't share any information at all with her sister. And they really had a rough time together. Anna and her sister Lucy's relationship only became more strained from here. Now Lucy's working for the FBI in Miami, is assigned to a unit dedicated to finding Cuban spies. Can you believe that? Little does Lucy know that her sister's actually Fidel Castro's greatest spy of all time. But get this, Lucy wasn't the only family member working for the American government. And as Lucy joins the FBI, after about two years, she meets a guy in Miami named Chris. She marries him. So now we have two members of the family in the FBI. And then at a certain point, Lucy realized that the Bureau was looking for people with diverse backgrounds. And she suggested her sister-in-law, Joan, who was a Korean-American, and Joan becomes an FBI special agent. And she tells her husband, Tito, this is Anna and Lucy's brother. Hey, you know, this is a possibility. Maybe I'm going to become an FBI special agent. Tito at the time was an inch away from becoming a priest. He hears that Lucy is called and said, you know, you guys might be good candidates for the FBI. He decides Forget about being a priest. I want to be in the FBI also. So now Anna has four close family members working at the FBI. Right about Thanksgiving that they had once with all these other friends of Tito and Joan invited to the Thanksgiving with their guns and badges everywhere. Meanwhile, Anna's sitting there as this already recruited and very successful special agent for Cuba, a Cuban spy in the midst. It was just an incredible, really coincidence and created incredible psychological problems for Anna. I would imagine you mentioned Anna and Lucy's father was very complicated, right? So Anna and Lucy's father, he was a physician and he worked for the army. He retired as a colonel. By all accounts, Albert Montes was a genius. He served in the military and later became a Freudian psychoanalyst. When he flew to Albany to attend medical school, that was the first flight he'd ever taken in his life. He grew up incredibly poor, no electricity in the home, no running water, and was just a brilliant guy and really worked hard. Unfortunately, he also had all kinds of psychological demons of his own. Despite his intelligence, Alberto was abusive to his children, beating his kids for any little reason. You know, spilled milk, 
playing too loudly, that kind of thing. And the kids were really terrified of Alberto, their father. And that went on through um, adolescence for them. Alberto was also abusive to his first wife, Ana's mother. And he once beat his second wife so badly that she had to go to the hospital with a broken arm. He was a very difficult personality, brilliant, very successful professionally, but he was only five foot seven. He terrorized the family members around him and clearly was very ironic because he was an expert in Freud. So he knew how harmful this behavior could be. And yet he ignored it at every turn. And what do you think that growing up in that type of environment for Ana Matas, how do you think that her relationship with her father shaped her to be who she ultimately became? Well, it's a complicated question because you have all these siblings and they go in different directions. And Lucy really wants to make the point. And she's, by the way, to some extent, channeled her emotions through me for an article that I wrote originally for the Washington Post. She wants the world to know that despite the fact that her father was so difficult and the kids lived in fear of him, that she made a very different decision than Anna did. They were raised under the same roof, and yet no one else ended up a spy or a criminal. It's hard to pinpoint Anna's motivation for becoming a spy, especially when her sister went down a completely different path. After Anna's arrest, CIA psychologists interviewed her, trying to figure out why she would betray her country. And one of the points that they lay out in a classified document, they make the point that her father and the abuse that she suffered from her father, who was in the military, stayed with her and created this situation where she wanted to rebel against authority, and particularly the U.S. military, as a way to strike back at her father. Anna, in, in letters, has denied that as too simplistic, but I think there's something to it. But as I said, Lucy wants to make the point that, okay, that was how Anna handled this. It's not how I handled it. I was upset too. My father terrified me as well. I became a loyal, patriotic, FBI employee and American. How did her environment create who she was? The fact that Puerto Rico is kind of colonized by the United States. I mean, all these elements are shaping her worldview, right? And can we kind of talk about that? Her motivation is multifaceted, I would say. So let's start with her family. We talked about Ana's father and how that relationship impacted her. But perhaps her mother had an even bigger influence. The folks divorced and her mom in the 70s kind of sought her own independence and found her voice in her community. She was relied on a lot within the community and by the local newspapers in Baltimore as an expert on the growing Hispanic community in the Baltimore area. And she would speak out on political issues that meant a lot to her. And Anna has said that her mom was a really great role model to her for someone who was fiercely independent and called them as she saw them. So that was, a, that was an influence, too, in a way. When Ana Montes was in her early 30s, the Reagan administration authorized the CIA to support the Contras, a right-wing Nicaraguan group 
to combat the influence held by the Marxist Sandinistas. La única solución para que los contras sean demovilizados es por medio de las armas. As Reagan came into office, Anna was just entering graduate school at the Johns Hopkins at SICE, the Foreign Affairs School of Washington. And most students at SICE at that time were horrified by the Reagan administration. They were very muscular and aggressive in Latin America. And particularly with Nicaragua, they took the side of the government and the Contras against the Sandinistas. And many young Americans and Anna's in this camp saw the Sandinistas as just option against the corrupt Nicaraguan government. So with all this happening in the background, Anna became further and further politicized. While studying abroad in Spain, Anna took to the streets to protest against U.S. policy in Latin America. She wrote in her diary about her kind of growing love and fascination for communist governments. I can't say she was a communist. I don't think she was, but she was certainly sympathetic to certain elements. Another influence on Ana Montes was her graduate professor in Spain. When Ana was at SAIS, one of the most popular professors at the time, in fact, he's still teaching, his name is Piero Glijesis. And he's a really smart guy. He's Italian-born. He speaks five languages. And admittedly, will call himself the most leftist professor at SAIS. And especially during the Reagan era, he was incensed as well. And so a lot of the students really gravitated towards him. Some of his detractors said about him that he romanticized Castro and the Castro regime and pulled a lot of students in as a result. So why exactly did she turn? We'll never really know. She could have been rebelling against her father. She could have been swept up by her mother's activism or influenced by her leftist college professor. But Jim Popkins has a different theory. So all of that together, it was this cauldron, basically, of different feelings and emotions that made her who she is. But there's also a part of her, and as Lucy points out, we were raised the same way. Many people have political leftist views. They don't become spies. And there is a part of Anna that made a decision that I believe is based on ego there was something about the mission and secretly helping an enemy to the United States while working within the military superstructure at the Defense Intelligence Agency for nearly 17 years. That was an ego boost and an ego It was a rush. Right? A rush, yes. Yeah. I would imagine because most people, it's like Icarus, right? Fly too close to the sun. Some people get off on that, while most people run away from that feeling. They like the adrenaline that comes with it. We've talked about why she became a spy, but what exactly was Ana Montes doing during her 17 years working for Castro's regime? That's after the break. Now let's talk about her becoming a spy. It was not my understanding that she joined the intelligence agency with the intent to become a spy. 
First of all, the Cubans, they have a brilliant intelligence agency and very few people realize that because obviously we think about the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians, let's say, but the Cubans have a very good intelligence service. They were trained by the Soviets. They don't have a lot of money, but they're very scrappy and their main target is America, of course. During graduate school in Spain, Ana Montes met a young woman named Marta Velasquez. She befriended Ana, and they became thick as thieves, if that's not too much of a cliche. And really, Ana was such a great recruit for her. It turns out that Marta already had been recruited herself by the Cubans, and her role at SICE was basically as a spotter of new talent. So she meets Ana. She realizes this is another woman whose parents are from Puerto Rico. That's important politically. She's outspoken against the Reagan administration in classes, and they're politically simpatico. They're aligned. And Marta is very clever. She's trained by the Cubans. She starts slowly and says, you know, I have friends who want to help Nicaragua. Maybe you could help them. Maybe you could do some translations for Nicaragua. So she starts very gently. As their friendship developed, Marta slowly let Ana in. And in 1985, the two women traveled to New York to meet Marta's friend. This happened to be a Cuban intelligence officer. And he makes a formal pitch at this meal to Ana to become a spy. And Ana volunteers, essentially. She agrees. There is some debate about how manipulated Anna was. What I can say is that the Cubans were really clever. You don't get a knock on the door and someone says to you, hey, do you want to spy for Cuba? It doesn't work that way. So you start with, in her case, you're so upset about Nicaragua. Maybe you can help the people of Nicaragua. Start very slowly and humbly and build up. Ana Montes was excited to be in a position to help. By this time, Ana had already graduated and got a job working for the Department of Justice and even had a national security clearance. She knew that she was working for the Cubans. And then the two women, Marta and Ana, take this incredible trip in early 1986 to Havana for training. Keep in mind, Ana works for the Department of Justice. She can't just take her passport and go to Cuba. That would not be cool. So what they do is they pretend that it's like a fun girl's vacation to Spain and they fly to Madrid. When they're in Madrid, they're met by a Cuban handler. The Cuban handler then takes them to Prague. They're given fake passports, new clothes, and then a new handler in Prague escorts them on the flight all the way to Havana. They spent a couple weeks in Cuba training, learning how to beat the polygraph test. How to communicate surreptitiously back and forth with the Cubans, how to realize if you're being followed and avoid being tailed. You know, classic spy 101 training. And on the way back, they fly back to Prague and then Madrid and then home to Washington. When they're in Madrid, they get their cameras out and they take a bunch of pictures of them in front of, you know, landmarks. And that was so that they could show customs 
oh yeah, we, we were in Spain. We were just having fun in Spain and never mentioned Cuba. And of course, the Cuba visit wouldn't show up on her passport. That's very interesting, that transformation, because she's going to take all these skills that she learned in spy 101 school in Cuba and, and put them to use, really. But my question is, what kind of sensitive information was Anna privy to at the time for the U.S. government? I mean, did she have a pretty high-level security clearance at this point? When she was at the Justice Department, she had a top-secret clearance, and she had access to some information that would be useful to Cuba, but it was not a gold mine. And so what happened when she went to Havana is there was a discussion about where you should apply and how to elevate your status and career. And from there, the Cubans encouraged Ana Montes to apply to the Defense Intelligence Agency. This is the agency in charge of providing intelligence for military missions. And guess what? It worked. Ana was accepted with flying colors, and the DIA never even gave her a polygraph test. It was that easy. Huge red flag, of course. So she's climbing up the ranks in terms of classified information. And it's almost like Cuba invested in her in a way, right? They saw potential. That's a great way to, to put it. They did invest in her. You know, I think that really speaks to their capabilities as an intelligence agency. They find this young woman, she was in her late 20s when they found her in graduate school. She's at DOJ. She does have a security clearance. But who is she? She didn't really have access to anything. They insert her into the DIA within the intelligence arm of the military. Marta actually is her reference on her application. She's a Cuban spy too, but the U.S. government didn't know it. And they sit back and wait and watch. And Anna was an incredible worker. She really had terrific skills as an analyst and a writer at first handling Nicaragua and then El Salvador. And then ultimately she got assigned to the Cuba desk for DIA. And she became one of the most skilled analysts within the whole U.S. government understanding Cuba's military and Cuba's political structure. So the Cubans scored. They bet on Ana Montes and it paid off. Ana Montes continued to climb the ranks within the DIA, getting promoted again and again. She ultimately ends up as one of their top analysts. They couldn't have gotten any more lucky, right? Like they couldn't have planned that better if they tried. And some experts have said that actually, even if she had been at the CIA, she wouldn't have had the same access. Things were a little looser at DIA. She had legitimate access to all kinds of classified information and probably was able to poke around a lot more than she would have been able to at, let's say, CIA or NSA, where potentially there's more information. But she had a lot more almost carte blanche access at DIA to do her job. After she became a spy and now she's working for DIA, the first couple of times she would meet with her Cuban handlers in New York. And she realized that was really very dangerous to go to New York and then also to be seen with someone who 
would be known to the FBI. This is an intelligence officer known to the FBI. So she insisted that she have cutouts. Cutouts are people who work for the Cubans, but with no known association with them. It could be someone in the business world or a lawyer, or it could be a cab driver. It's someone who is loyal to the Cuban government, who will be her handler and protector, but the FBI will never know about it because they're in the dark. And she also insisted that her handlers meet her in Washington so she didn't have to travel. And so what she would do is she essentially had two jobs. Her day job was at DIA. She'd sit down and she would memorize classified information. And she had legitimate authority to look at these documents, but she would memorize. And she had a good, not great memory. She trained herself to be better. And she realized it was too much of a risk to take documents out of the building. So Anna would study these documents all day long during work. Then at night, her second job would begin. She would spend this time essentially uploading all the information that she had studied at the DIA into her Toshiba laptop. It would be encrypted and she'd put them on floppy disks. And then she would take that information, her analysis, if you will, of what she'd learned from the Americans. And she would meet every couple of weeks with her Cuban handler in a restaurant in Washington, D.C., typically a Chinese restaurant. So that was somewhat risky, of course, to meet with a Cuban and slip a disc to him on a table in a Chinese restaurant. But these were people who were not known to the FBI. So she limited her risk in that way. And these handlers, this became super important for her. They were almost her whole social circle. If you think about it, you're living this big lie every day. You certainly can't tell your colleagues anything about it. You can't be honest. It turns out that being a spy is not as sexy as they make it look in the movies. In reality, it's incredibly lonely. Yeah, I'm sure there was part of that that she really liked and responded to. There also was a part toward the end, especially of her spy career, where she wanted nothing to do with it. She wanted, actually wanted to get out. She fell in love with a guy. She wanted to kind of go straight and not continue her criminal ways. But it doesn't really work that way. It's not as easy to abandon a life of crime. Once you're in, you're in. It's almost like deciding to join the mafia. You just can't leave. You see, there are only three main ways to win or lose a game of chess. Checkmate, resignation, or timeout. While some matches end by checkmate, some players never even get that far. Sometimes one of the players believes that he or she will be checkmate soon and resigns. Then there's timeout. Timeout is the most painful way to lose a chess game. It doesn't matter how much of an advantage you have on the board or whether you have a checkmate on the horizon. If you run out of time, you automatically lose. And for Ana Montes, after a 17-year run with the Cubans, time was running out. With four members of her family working with the FBI, she was surrounded. Little did she know that her sister Lucy inadvertently played a role in her identification as a Cuban mole. Next time on Pretend. How did Ana Montes get caught? And where is she today? 
You can listen to part two of The Cuban Spy right now if you subscribe to Pretend Plus on Apple Podcasts or sign up for Patreon. Remember, when you subscribe, not only are you supporting a small little indie show like mine, but you get lots of bonus content and early episodes before anyone else. All right, well, that's all for this week. I will talk to you again next week. Take care. Today's episode was written and produced by me, Javier Leva, and Audrey Gibbs, and it was edited by Punith Shinoy, with the podcast pundits. Creative Backup.